G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks. Welcome back. Welcome back, indeed, to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We've just come back from a break over the Christmas festive season, and it is great. It is great to be back. We'd like to welcome all our listeners, and uh, we trust that you all had a wonderful Christmas time too. But when we left off in our last episode, we had just dropped a very controversial truth bomb on our audience. Now, Tim, I know we have a history on this show of putting up people's expectations and then leaving them hanging. You're not going to do that this time, are you? Mm. Oh, tempting, Chris. Very tempting. But no, no, today I thought it'd be best to back up what I said last time by giving people a bit of an idea of the way that ancient people thought about the connection between wars and floods, specifically the flood. Yes, not just uh, Jars of Clay's most famous song. Well, I'm kind of relieved that we're going to get some straight talk on this to back up what we were talking about last time, but I'm also, as always, a bit lost. You're telling me that there were other people in the ancient world who had this idea of connecting warfare with flooding? That's right. This isn't unique to me and my view of Scripture. It was actually a lot more common than you might think. One of the reasons we don't see it in the Bible is because we don't recognize it when we see it. But it kind of feels like nobody's talking about this stuff. I mean, certainly I haven't come across anybody saying that ancient people use the language of the Great Flood to talk about warfare. And until recently, I didn't think that the Bible did that either. So I'm not really sure what to make of all this. Yeah, I'm not surprised, mate. You're not alone there by any means. But uh, if there's one thing that this podcast has helped to make abundantly clear to people, it's that our view of the Bible, uh, particularly in Protestant evangelical circles, has been tainted by the so-called Enlightenment and the critical view of the scriptures introduced by so-called higher criticism in the academy. And that has meant a firm dependence on rationalism, naturalism, and even literalism to the degree that most Christians in that camp today will only affirm the supernatural in as far as it's directly connected to their salvation. You ask people if they believe in God, they'll say yes. You ask if they believe in the incarnation of Christ, the virgin birth, the resurrection, all those things, they'll say yes. And they're saying yes because they realize that salvation is tied to acknowledgement and confession of those things at a minimum. You might get an admission that they believe in angels and maybe demons, but that's about it. But what about the supernatural world outside of the confessions of the church? What about all that weird stuff that we find in the pages of our Bible that doesn't seem to have much bearing on our own relationship with God? Don't people think that stuff is important or do they just not believe in it? Now, that's where most modern Christians are dropping the ball. You start talking about the sons of God, the giants, the gods of the nations, that kind of thing, and a lot of people look at you like you've got two heads. They've just got no frame of reference for any of that stuff. And the problem I have with that is that if you don't get the picture of what's happening in Scripture with regard to the world that lies beyond our five natural senses, then you can't possibly grasp the magnitude of the work of God in your own life. And you can go your whole life without realizing just how much Jesus accomplished when he went to the cross for our sins. You're going to read your Bible and not even see it there. And we wonder why it's so hard to make sense of the scriptures. And as much as I'd love to talk about all that kind of thing, and, and we will come back to it, we're getting a bit off topic because what I really want to do today is give you a bit of a feel for how ancient people were thinking about the flood and its connection with warfare and violence in the ancient world. As I say, most modern Christians haven't seen it because they've not been aware of the context. And they've also not been aware of the sides in this war and how they interact with each other in the story of the flood. And I did mention earlier this season now, the flood story plays a really important part in informing Jewish eschatology, which is later inherited by the followers of Jesus. You'll be amazed at how well this works as an interpretive model that guides our understanding of some of the major biblical authors. 
That sounds cool. Are we going to talk about that now? No. We're going to dive into some ancient Near Eastern literature, which we have done before on the show. But this time I'm not going to be reading huge portions of epic stories and poems. We just haven't got the time for that kind of thing because I want to cover a lot of ground. Let's start with Atrahasis. You might remember this from before, so I'm not going to read much here. When we read the Atrahasis story, we found that the flood was described like a battle. Quote, the Kasuzu weapon went against the people like an army. Okay, so what we have here is the idea that certain gods have the ability to bring a torrent of water or a great storm as a weapon against enemies. And we have that special language there indicating that this is a divine power and not just some normal, ordinary thing that a man could do. The other thing that's made abundantly clear is that this weapon is overwhelming and devastating, which is exactly the kind of description that fits both warfare and flood. Here in Atrahasis, it's a flood like an army, but we're going to find that in a significant number of other ancient Near Eastern sources, the metaphor is flipped around. What do you mean? Well, let's have a look at some inscriptions left by famous Assyrian kings who left their mark, pun intended, on both Israel and Babylon throughout ancient history. All right, that sounds interesting. Here's a bit from the Nimrud inscription of the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III. Uh, just a little background on him. He reigned 745 to 727 BC, so we're talking 8th century. Conquered Babylon, 729 BC. Declared himself king of the universe, yada, yada, yada. Uh, this part of the inscription seems to be describing the conquest of some Chaldean territories. And he says, I captured the cities Tabaku and Yabalu, and I carried away as spoil 30,000 of their inhabitants, together with their possessions, their goods, their property, and their gods. Those cities, together with the cities round about them, I destroyed, so that they were like a ruin of the flood. So you can see there the connection between military devastation and the effects of a flood, or specifically the flood. Here's another one from the same inscription. I shut up Yukin Zir of Amukani in Sapia, his capital, and killed his many warriors before its gate. I cut down the palm groves, which were close by its wall, and I left not a tree standing. I destroyed his date palms, which were in his land, plucked off their fruit, and filled the fields with it. All of his cities I laid waste, destroyed and burned with fire. I devastated the lands of Bitshalani, Bitermakani, and Bitshali throughout their entire extent, so that they were like a ruin of the flood. There it is again. And I reduced them to mounds and plowland. Sounds like a pretty ruthless guy. Yeah, you could say he had zero chill. Actually, he had zero Ruth. Get it? Ruthless. He didn't have any Ruth. That's a terrible pun. Please don't do that again. Thanks. That's fair. But you're right. The Assyrians were notoriously savage. Uh, Tiglath-Pileser III was succeeded by his son, Shalmaneser V, who reigned five years and was himself succeeded by his younger brother, Sargon II, after a bloody civil war. This is the dynasty that destroyed Samaria and took the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. Later, Sargon, as part of a letter written to his god Ashur, remember these are Assyrians, wrote this about his invasion of Urartu in 714 BC. And he says, I took the head of my army and made the chariots, cavalry, and battle troops that accompany me fly over it like eagles. I made the support troops and foot soldiers follow them, and the camels and pack mules jumped over the peaks like goats raised in the mountains. I made the surging flood of Assyrians easily cross over its difficult height, and on top of that mountain I set up camp. All right, so here we've got the army described as a flood. It's interesting that this describes the conquest and defeat of the people of Urartu. A good case can be made that this region relates to the mountains of Ararat, as recorded in the Bible. 
Notice also the mention of the tops of the mountains. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. In 689 BC, Sennacherib, the son of Sargon, destroyed Babylon. It's interesting that a depiction of him was found at the base of Mount Judy, which is one of the traditional sites where Noah's Ark was said to have come to rest. This is how he describes that destruction. He says, The city and houses are completely destroyed from foundations to roof and set fire to them. I tore down both inner and outer city walls, temples, temple towers made of brick and clay, as many as there were, and threw everything into the Aratu Canal. I dug a ditch inside the city and thereby leveled off the earth on its site with water. I destroyed even the outline of its foundations. I flattened it more than any flood could have done. In order that the site of that city and its temples would never be remembered, I devastated it with water so that it became a mere meadow. So this guy not only uses language of the flood, he goes beyond that to say that what he did was even more destructive. He's really talking himself up here. And knowing just how destructive water can be, he actually made use of that as part of his devastation of Babylon. Man, these Assyrian kings don't muck around. You can say that again. Man, these Assyrian kings don't muck around. I deserve that. Moving on, uh, here's an excerpt from an inscription written by King Esarhaddon, son of Sennacherib, around the year 673 BC. You see how we're just rolling through a succession of Assyrian kings here. This describes the invasion of the Assyrians, and it's another account of the destruction of Babylon. Interestingly, he says Babylon's own gods decided to destroy Babylon when it was actually his dad. He says the Enlil of the gods, the god Marduk, became angry and plotted evil to the land and to destroy its people. The river Aratu, normally a river of abundance, turned into an angry wave, a raging tide, a huge flood like the deluge. It swept its waters destructively across the city and its shrines and turned them into ruins. The gods and goddesses dwelling in it flew up to the heavens like birds. The people living in it were hidden in another place and took refuge in an unknown land. The merciful god Marduk wrote that the calculated time of its abandonment should last 70 years. That's an interesting number. But his heart was quickly soothed, and he reversed the numbers and thus ordered its reoccupation to be after 11 years. All right, that's the end of the quote. Um, and the second time we've heard mention of the Aratu River or Canal, the first time it was filled with rubble from destroyed buildings being thrown into it. And the second time it says that the river flooded the city. I think what that means is they dammed the river using materials gathered from the destruction and diverted water through the city to destroy the area as part of the battle plan. That would have been pretty awesome to witness. It's quite amazing what ancient people were capable of doing, actually. Yeah, you're not wrong, mate. And using floods as a weapon still happens. In fact, both Nazi and Allied forces used flooding against each other in the world wars. More recently, Saddam Hussein diverted water from the Tigris and Euphrates rivers to drain the marshlands in southern Iraq, where enemy insurgents were taking refuge. That had the effect of flooding huge areas of farmland and displacing over 100,000 people turning them into impoverished refugees virtually overnight. Anyway, back to ancient Babylon. The instruction is given for Babylon to be rebuilt, and this is how that gets talked about. You truly selected me, Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, in the assembly of my older brothers to put these matters right. And you are the one who placed your sweet protection over me, swept away all of my enemies like a flood, killed all of my foes and made me attain my wish and to appease the heart of your great divinity and to please your spirit, you entrusted me with shepherding Assyria. Okay, so you see by now the consistent use of flood rhetoric in the context of military destruction. And this is coming from the Assyrians who are geographically placed in the region that these early stories of the primeval history most likely originate from. Remember, we talked about the Garden of Eden being most likely in Assyrian territory. And later, we're going to see that the Ark arrives on the mountains of Ararat. 
Yeah, that was in season two when we talked about Eden, wasn't it? That's right. So the flood story also has these Assyrian origins. And why are we using all this Assyrian source material as inspiration for the primeval history, which is set against the Babylonian backdrop and compiled in that context? That's a good question. Why are we using all this Assyrian source material as inspiration for the primeval history, which is set against a Babylonian backdrop and compiled in that context? <gasps> well, I'm glad you asked. It makes a really good way to cut down the pride of the Babylonians. It wasn't that long ago that they were under Assyrian control, and it gets the message across in a way that everyone can understand. Remember, the Babylonians were not the only ones to have been humbled by the Assyrians because they also devastated Israel in the past and exiled the 10 northern tribes. So this cuts deep for the Jewish audience as well. The other thing that this does is that it speaks to the classic Greek poets as well. You mean guys like Homer who wrote the Odyssey? Yeah, that's right. It hasn't gone unnoticed that the beginning of the stories of the Trojan War starts with Zeus declaring that he is going to curb the human population in order to restore the separation between gods and men and stop the interbreeding that was responsible for the demigods. Here's a quote. All the gods were divided in spirit through strife, for at that time high-thundering Zeus was planning wondrous deeds to mingle disorder on the boundless earth, for he was already hastening to annihilate the race of mortal men as a pretext to destroy the lives of the demigods, so that the children of the gods would not mate with wretched mortals, seeing fate with their own eyes, but that the blessed gods henceforth as before should have their way of life and their accustomed places apart from mortal men. Now, that's actually from Hesiod's Catalogue of Women, but Homer also follows a similar narrative. Dasnus initially wrote in his epic, uh, Cypria, that the motivation for the Trojan War was human overpopulation and impropriety, very much like the Atrahasis where it brought about the flood. I thought that ancient Greek stuff came later. Well, certainly later than the Akkadian stories, but earlier than the period of the Jewish exile in Babylon. These are actually very old stories that go back in written form, possibly earlier than the 7th century BC. And the oral tradition may have its roots in the late 2nd millennium BC. The historicity of the Trojan War is not a settled debate, although people are coming around to the view that it actually was a real thing. And in that case, it may have occurred as early as 1200 BC or thereabouts. And guess where it happened? That's modern-day Turkey. But we know it better as ancient Assyria. So... It was actually a war against the Syrian kings. Speaking of, and getting back to our core material here, Esar uh, Haddon was succeeded by his son Ashurbanipal, who is remembered for many things, not least of which is the world-famous Library of Ashurbanipal, rediscovered in Nineveh in the 19th century, and that's how we modern folk came to be acquainted with the Epic of Gilgamesh. Speaking of which, let's have a little paragraph from Tablet 11, which is the account of the Flood. Eregal pulled out the mooring poles, forth went Ninurta and made the dikes overflow. The Anunnaki lifted up the torches, setting the land ablaze with their flare. Stunned shock over Adad's deeds overtook the heavens and turned to blackness all that had been light. The land shattered like a pot. All day long the south wind blew, blowing fast, submerging the mountain in water, overwhelming the people like an attack. No one could see his fellow. They could not recognize each other in the torrent. What's interesting here is that we've returned to the use of the language of warfare in the context of a flood story, just like what we saw in Atrahasis. So when we read these literary accounts of a real flood that occurred in ancient history, we get this language of warfare used to describe it. But then when we look at the Assyrian kings describing their military conquests, they describe those in terms that connect them to the great flood. 
So there's definitely a deep connection between flood and warfare in the ancient Near Eastern mind, and for many in the Middle East today, that hasn't gone away. In fact, the recent conflict in Gaza is another example of flooding used as a military tactic. The Israeli Defence Force have been pumping seawater into the tunnels used by the Hamas terrorist organisation to flush them out and disrupt their logistics and communications. It's starting to make sense now. I didn't realise that the use of flooding as a military tactic is something that is still in use even today. Yeah, it just goes to show there's always been that connection between flood and warfare. But what we have to establish now is whether the Bible is doing the same thing or something different. Okay, so how are we going to do that? Well, this is where I'm going to come back to the point that I made earlier about the supernatural worldview of the ancient biblical authors, which we've sadly lost in modern times. In the earliest known flood epic from Sumeria, which is a purely religious text, there's no evidence of any kind of military terminology in the flood story. When we look at later elaborations on that flood story, as we saw with Atrahasis and with Gilgamesh, and we're getting into poetic material now, we find military imagery used to describe the flood. After that, we start getting these historical records left behind by Assyrian kings who talk about their conquests by comparing them against the devastation of the Great Flood. And in future episodes of the podcast, we're going to talk about the way the biblical authors do the same thing. But what nobody's doing is using the narrative of the Great Flood in order to describe a great battle where gods and men are at war. That is, until we take a closer look at the flood story in Genesis. And that's what we're going to be doing as we continue unpacking this story on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Can't wait to get into this. It's going to be awesome. It certainly is. But even though I said at the start of the show I wasn't going to leave our listeners hanging, we are going to take a little break from this because next week I want to talk about the construction of Noah's Ark. And that should be fun. Yeah, I hope so. And if you haven't already figured it out, it's not going to be the Sunday school colouring in kind of arc. Sorry, Ken Ham. We're going to be talking about the real deal. Also, I'm just going to put this out there right now. I do not care where you think the ark is now. Care factor zero. That's just a distraction. It's going to take us away from the biblical text. Plenty of other people have spent time on this, and you can talk to them about it and listen to what they have to say. As far as I'm concerned, it makes absolutely no sense to leave an enormous wooden vessel intact following the total devastation of civilization when there are so many potential needs and uses for those materials. Not to mention the fact that it was traditionally believed that everybody was pinching bits of it to use as sacred relics or talismans to ward off any future floods. I realize that a lot of people think they've found it. All I'm going to say to that is, well, show us. Anyway, as I say, next week's episode is going to be all about the construction of the Ark, so we'll get into the biblical details on that and see what happens when we compare it to other flood stories from the ancient Near East. Well, I'm looking forward to that one, as always, but right now it's time for Q&A. Let's see if we can find an answer to our listeners' giant questions. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us at the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Lois, great name by the way, asked via the website, giantanswers.com. I was listening to one of your podcasts where you talk about the fact that ancient Near Eastern cosmology, while used in metaphorical pictures in the Bible, is not what the authors really believed. You say this idea, which is expressed in John Walton's books, comes from Martin Luther's drawings. I've taken a course with Dr. Taylor Gray at the Israel Bible Center, who showed us pictographs from the ancient world that also show these depictions. So my question is, are you saying that other cultures did see it this way? 
and the biblical authors are just using the language, or do you believe no one actually believes this? That's a great question, Lois. Thanks for sending that in. It's true that there are some ancient depictions of what we've come to know as dome cosmology. These are most famous from Egyptian depictions of those ideas. Walton has talked about these at length, and in his view, they support his assertion that ancient people actually took them seriously as a depiction of the material qualities of the universe. So Walton is actually saying, yes, people really did believe that the sky was hard and the earth was flat and that if you walked too far, you'd fall off the edge. And if you climbed too high, you'd hit your head on the ceiling. Now, I'm quite happy to acknowledge that the pictographs convey the sense of some kind of order in the universe. So I agree with Walton there. Things like this help people put into words, or in this case, a visual image, concepts that otherwise would be difficult to grasp mentally. They're a tool to help the mind wrap around the immaterial. And I'm not saying that ancient people didn't take these things seriously or that they didn't believe the claims being made and supported by the use of these mental images. Uh, A little caveat there, we have to make sure that we understand what the actual claims being made really are. This is where modern European thought fails. What I'm saying is that they didn't take them literally in the sense that they expected the depictions in media to translate to concrete realities. In other words, when an Egyptian looked up at the sky, he didn't expect to see the goddess Nut forming the celestial dome. He knew he wasn't going to be looking up at the sky and seeing her kneecaps in the east and her elbows in the west and her belly button up the top in the middle, never mind the other bits. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. These are just ways to talk about cosmic order and the divine beings that maintain it. And as long as we remember that these depictions are supposed to show the role that the gods play in maintaining cosmic order rather than some kind of physical construction of the world, then we can maintain an understanding consistent with that of the ancient world. But the Egyptians, much like the ancient Israelites, had no problem with talking about the sky above them in concrete terms. In fact, the hieroglyph that represents the heavens above them is a picture of a big bowl full of water, not a dome above the land. It's concave, not convex. That bowl is the same hieroglyph used to talk about the womb of the sky goddess. It's the same one that's also used to describe the cosmic waters above the sky. And it's the same one used to describe one of the most precious resources in the ancient world, iron. That's interesting, but doesn't that work against your argument, Tim? I don't think so. Now, there's a very simple and intelligent way of understanding the connection between all these different things that are represented by that one hieroglyph. None of this is really much different from the ancient Hebrew cosmology, with the exception of the sky goddess part, of course. The Israelites don't need a god of the sky and a god of the land and a god of this and a god of that. There's one god, he's the god of everything. Amen. But look at what the Egyptians get right here with this simple picture. You have the idea of the waters above, which is seen as the domain of the gods and the source of life from the divine. Water is usually connected to life, no problem there. That's what we see in the Bible. Again, it's not literal water. Then you have to have some kind of impenetrable barrier between the divine realm and that of humans. It's not there to keep the water out. Remember, it's not literal water. A sensible way to depict that would be to have the cosmic waters contained in some kind of vessel, just to keep everything orderly, and that's exactly the way the Egyptians like it. So a big bowl would fit the bill nicely. But how do you describe the idea that this is an impenetrable barrier beyond the efforts of ordinary mortals to traverse? To do that, you need your bowl to be made out of the hardest material that you know of. It just so happens that in ancient Egypt, that material would be iron. And in the time before the Iron Age, the only way to get that would be to find meteoric iron that had fallen from the sky. You say what? Remember when we talked about the line of Cain in Genesis 4 and the idea of metalworking? When you recognise that the earliest humans only had access to iron when it came down from above. 
that really helps you give the picture of what was happening there. Nice. I never thought of that. We actually have artifacts made for the pharaohs of Egypt, made from meteoric iron. One of these in particular being quite noticeable because it's a dagger made for the purpose of the dead pharaoh being able to cut his way through that barrier in the afterlife to get access to the divine realm. But doesn't that support the idea that they really thought you needed to be able to cut through iron in order to get access to the divine realm? You might say, but doesn't that support the idea that they really thought you needed to be able to cut through iron in order to get access to the divine realm? But if that was the case, we would expect every pharaoh to be buried with a similar knife. Nobody thought that the guy who owned this particular knife, that was Tutankhamun, by the way, uh, was going to be the only one to get in. It's a symbolic gesture. The knife isn't necessary, but it is meaningful. So once again, that association of iron with the divine realm in the heavens is not supposed to be understood as a concrete reality. We're right back with the ancient Hebrews and the idea of this impenetrable barrier. The thing is that the Egyptians understood where iron came from, and they already had the association of high altitude with the domain of the gods. I won't get into all that stuff about cosmic mountains and that kind of thing, but if you've been listening to those earlier episodes where I talk about this, you'll get the idea. The point is that iron was seen as the gift of the gods, and it was thought that wherever the gods are up there, they must be able to throw some down from time to time. And there's a significant difference between the idea that there is iron in the heavens and the idea that the whole sky is literally an iron bowl. Remember, that would be a bowl standing upright with water in it, as the hieroglyph suggests, not a bowl upside down like you see in so many modern depictions of ancient cosmology. The Hebrew conception of the separation between the divine and human realms is illustrated by this idea of an expanse that is impenetrable. In Hebrew language, you get that from the visual image of a person working with bronze to expand this impervious material, which would usually be used to make shields. Of course, shields were usually round and convex rather than the concave Egyptian bowl, but again, nobody cares about the shape because the idea in both cosmological models is the idea of an impenetrable barrier. And the way that you say that it's impenetrable is to say that it's made out of something hard. So there's nothing new here when we take a serious look at Egyptian cosmology. It's every bit as sophisticated as the biblical cosmology that I presented earlier in the show. And the only claim being made by the Egyptians, as far as these cosmological models are concerned, that I'd take issue with, is the uh, pantheism inherent in their depiction of cosmic order. Outside of that, I think what we see in ancient cosmologies is strikingly consistent, but it all depends on how pervasive our own modern worldview is when it comes to the interpretation. So I'm not saying that the Israelites didn't follow conventional ancient Near Eastern cosmology. I'm saying that modern interpreters don't understand it. I think the picture throughout the ancient Near East is very consistent. We have to remember that the worldview of the Israelite people and the Hebrew Bible itself are products of the ancient Near Eastern worldview. So we shouldn't expect a great deal of difference. That makes a lot of sense. And as far as my own view goes with regard to that, all I can say is it seems to be a lot more consistent than the views of some others who are quite happy to talk about function and purpose and order as the primary concerns of the ancient mind, but then they want to introduce naturalistic ideas instead of recognising the literary or artistic purposes of the media being interpreted. You know, you've got this idea of there has to be a hard barrier in the sky, otherwise the rainwater would fall down at the wrong time or something. And for me, it just makes a lot more sense than saying that ancient people always thought a certain way, except when they didn't. Uh, so that, that was the long answer, and the short one goes like this. I don't think that ancient people had any concern for the material nature of the cosmos until such times we get into the Hellenistic period. That's a long time after the Bible was written, and an even long time after the Egyptian cosmology, which we've just been talking about, was documented. 
as far as the biblical record is concerned, we have only the Hebrew text itself and the affirmations made in the Bible. But when we get into the Egyptian material, we find it not only in pictorial cosmologies, but also in the language of the hieroglyphs. Anyway, I just want to say thanks to Lois once again for that question, and I'm always happy to take a question like that because I think it shows you thinking about the material, and I really appreciate that. Hopefully that was a reasonably detailed response to help you understand where I'm coming from. I hope it made sense to you and the other listeners out there. Speaking of, uh, don't forget, you can all send in your own giant questions to be answered on the show, even if you have a question or perhaps some well-thought-out criticism of the views that I present. That's quite welcome. Just hit the website, giantanswers.com, and we'll take it from there. All right. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks again, Lois. Great name, by the way, again. Uh, that was a great question. We'll be back to tackle more giant questions next week when we return to talk about Noah's Ark. That's going to be awesome. I can't wait. Bye-bye now. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show music supplied under copyright by great forsaken greatforsaken.com you can get the book answers to giant questions by tj stedman on amazon in paperback and kindle format check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions read the blog and catch us on the socials don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers we'll see you next time until then stay safe and god bless okay ready stasinius as sorry stasinus stasinus Stasinus. Let me try that again. I think what we see in ancient cosmologies is strikingly cons- But when we left off in our lair, certainly I haven't. Sorry, I was imbibing alcohol. Let into the groove.